Well, hi, if you haven't met me yet, I'm BJ, one of the staff pastors here. I'm just going to read our scripture reading this morning before Mike comes up. And this is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, um, which says, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. Thank you, BJ. Good morning again, everybody. Good to see you guys. <sighs> okay. The Gospel of Mark. If you turn to chapter one, we're going to continue our study series in this amazing gospel account that Mark recorded for us. We'll begin this morning in verse 16. And before we start there, I asked BJ to read that passage from Isaiah 42 um, and the, to read the first four verses because it never ceases to amaze me how great our God is. And that is the subject matter of not only Isaiah chapter 42, but the entirety of scripture it is for us to see God and to be amazed at what he has done. And here's what I mean by pointing out the greatness of God in this particular text. Prior to the opening verses of Isaiah 42, we find Isaiah chapter 41. Are you impressed yet? Okay. Um, in Isaiah 41, our father is calling out other gods. And he says this to them in verses 21 through 24. It'll be on the screen. Submit your case, says the Lord. Present your arguments, says Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events that we may reflect on them and know the outcome. Or tell us the future. Tell us the coming events. Then we will know that you are gods. Indeed, do something, good or bad. Then we will be in awe when we see it. Look, you are nothing, and your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. If there's any question about how God feels about idolatry, please reread that section. He's pretty clear about it. They are nothing and worthless, these false gods, because they can't present arguments. They can't predict the future. They can't tell you what, about what happened in the past. He says they're completely and utterly powerless. And immediately, I'm borrowing from one of John Mark's favorite words that he uses throughout his gospel. I'll be saying that a lot. And immediately, because that's what he says all throughout this gospel account. In Isaiah chapter 42, we have a prophecy. As soon as God in Isaiah 41 says, here's what you need to do for us, for us to believe in you. He says, you can't, so you're worthless. So let me show you what I can do. And God shows what he can do in Isaiah chapter 42 in those first four verses. He shows his authority and his power by revealing his servant. He reveals Jesus in the Old Testament. And if you know the Bible, if you've read through the Bible, you know that the Old Testament will often refer to Christ. He's interwoven throughout the Old Testament text. And we saw the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 42, at least the beginning of it, last week in BJ's sermon as we read about the baptism of Jesus 
Note this from our study last week. Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 says this. As soon as he came up out of the water, this was at his baptism, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now look at Isaiah 42, 1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. A prophetic word in Isaiah 42 that we saw literally happen with Jesus. And as we'll see further along in our study this morning, continues to be fulfilled. We saw it happen at the baptism of Jesus. And no, I'm not going to reteach last week's message. I don't need to. Because BJ killed it. Amen? Love you, dude. Oh my gosh. I was so blessed last Sunday. I was sitting here and was like, <gasps> I maybe I, I might have hugged you too many times this week. I apologize. Never? Okay, you'll get more this week. The reason, you guys, I'm pointing this out, is that we can use the beginning of Isaiah 42 like an outline for today's passage. It continues on. It continues to show us before it happens what Jesus was going to do and what he was going to accomplish. We ought to be using a word that Mark will use in this text multiple times, astonished at the work of our God. We ought to be astonished at what the Lord can do. We ought to be astonished by reading the Old Testament at the fulfillment that we see in the New and we'll see Jesus fulfill these things in our text this morning. It is helpful, before we read our text for this morning, to remember from Luke's gospel account, that the ministry of Jesus in Galilee began not here along the sea, along the shores of the lake in Galilee. You can call it, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's, it's pretty much a lake. It didn't begin here, it began in his hometown. Prior to Jesus arriving here, we know from Luke's account, Jesus went to Nazareth. He went to his hometown, and he taught in his home synagogue first, and he read to them from Isaiah 61, the passage that says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, and Jesus says, this day, this passage has been fulfilled before your very eyes. And so they made him their king. It's not what happened, huh? It's not what happens. There in his hometown amongst people who undoubtedly knew him well, he was rejected. And not just rejected either. I don't know if you've been rejected like this lately. But in your most recent rejection from any person, did they take you to a cliff and try and throw you off of it? Because that's what they did to Jesus. That's pretty brutal rejection. <laughs> so like, he doesn't want to go out with me anymore. It could be a lot worse. Right? She won't call me back. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> She could be trying to throw you off a cliff right now. Maybe she wants to, but I, I, that's not for me to say. You guys, they tried to murder him in his hometown. That's how Jesus' ministry began. In Nazareth. I don't think in the midst of ministry being hard, in the midst of our lives being difficult, I don't think we've quite seen that yet. And Jesus faced it in his hometown. And miraculously, as they were wanting to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth, Jesus walks through the midst of the crowd, just passes right on by. You're like, how? I don't know. It'd be really cool to see. Just whoop, right through the crowd. He's gone. 
And he heads for the region of Galilee. Now, if you know this region, you know that there's beautiful rolling hills going north from Nazareth and a little bit to the east. And it's a beautiful lake town, a beautiful lake area. All these little villages all around this really gorgeous lake. It's a beautiful area, very lush. And that's where our text picks up as Jesus is now in the region of Galilee right along the seashore. It says this in Mark chapter 1, picking up where we left off last week, verse 16. We'll read down through verse 20, and we'll take this in sections this morning. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This whole account may seem kind of shocking to be like, wow, just like that? Well, it's a beautiful setting around the lake. Don't miss this. Don't, mix the, ba- don't miss the backdrop. And Jesus is starting to gather men who would become his closest friends during the years of his ministry ahead. And from the other gospels, we know that this wasn't the first time that these men had met Jesus. They had met at least a year prior. They knew each other. They'd interacted with each other. They most likely even traveled with him for a short period of time. This was not their initial call to faith. This wasn't their first call to salvation. What this was, was their first call to discipleship. Jesus has now looked at these men that he already knows and has called them to be his disciples, to follow him. And while Mark doesn't include the teaching that Jesus gave here on the lake on this day, we know that Jesus actually gave a sermon from the deck of Peter's ship. There was already a crowd around him, and they they pushed away from the dock a little bit, and he stood on the deck of Peter's boat, and he preached a message to the crowds there. Mark doesn't include as well the miracle of the fish that followed, and you probably remember the story where Peter and Jesus interact, and Jesus says, why don't you put your nets in the water? And Peter, the experienced fisherman, looks at Jesus and said, we didn't catch anything all night. But because you said so. We miss that about Peter, don't we? We're like, oh, Peter, so contrary, right? He's just going to argue all the time, always causing a problem. Did you see what he did after, though? He says, but at your word, I'll put the nets in the water. What does that speak to you of? Faith. He didn't have a good experience the night before, but he says, but because you say so. I'll put the nets in the water. What happened? Do you guys remember? What happens? They catch a few fish. And as soon as the net hits the water, it fills up so much, they have to signal to their partners to come over because the fish are burying the boat. Right? This amazing miracle happens. And with that in mind, notice what Mark draws our attention to as he calls these men to follow him. Jesus says, follow me. The time has come to put your faith completely in me. He's shown them why. The time has come for them to take that leap of faith, so to speak. Follow me was an expression that would be readily understood for someone to become a permanent disciple of a teacher. It was rabbinical language. It was something that they would be very familiar with in this time. It was a common practice for rabbis, and it was regarded as one of the most sacred duties for a master to gather around him, 
his disciples, his followers. They would go with him and learn from him. But Jesus was no ordinary teacher, was he? Jesus wasn't your status quo. The time had come for them to leave their lifestyle, their trade, their possessions behind. And instead of fishing for the fishies, they're going to be fishing for the peeps. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. They're going to fish for people now, he says. All night long they tried to catch fish with no success. And all the live long night, their own scribes and teachers had toiled to read the scriptures to them, but come up empty. All the live long day, the scribes had been sitting in the synagogues, teaching and reading the scriptures, but it was to no avail. The people were spiritually starving. The nets were empty. Just as the nets were empty the night before, so the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees had left the people starved. But at the word of Jesus, the nets would be full. But at the word of Jesus, those nets were going to fill. The servant of God had come to satisfy the spiritual starvation of his people. And so Simon and Andrew, James and John, leave their trade behind. They leave their livelihood. They leave the familiarity of their fisherman lifestyle. And their lives would never be the same. This is a huge moment. It reads so quickly. But these men left their normality behind. They left their comfort behind. Isn't it interesting that as Jesus chooses these four fishermen, and he's going to choose other men from other walks of life, but as he chooses these four fishermen, do you ever think about the skills that they gained as fishermen and how they would help them in the rough roads ahead? To stay the course, to weather the storms, to work hard, to have to make adaptation and switch and make changes to how they would approach a situation. It's interesting for me, you guys, how often I look back on all the years that I worked in the workforce, whether it was construction or whether it was in distributing or management, whatever it was, and I look back and I go, God was preparing me for what he was calling me to do now. Don't mistake the trials and the struggles you're going through now as if God just has forgotten you or doesn't understand your full potential. He is training you now for what he's going to use you for later. Don't fail this test. Don't fail the test that's difficult now. Remember, he's training you for what's next. As a word of encouragement, Edersheim once said this, when Christ is in the boat and bids us let down the net, there must be a great multitude of fishes. I love that because I like seeing fishes. Um, But... The best part of that is what, what he's saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Mike, really? Five years old? Is that what you are? Sometimes. Sometimes. The fishes. <laughs> you guys, this is why I was a great dad. I just talked to my kids in their language because it's what I speak. When Christ is in the boat and bids us to let down the net, we should not doubt him. Do what he says. When he calls us to follow, may we never hesitate to leave behind whatever we count as valuable to follow the call of Christ. Willing to do whatever it takes to walk with him, to be taught by him, to be his lambs. Mark 8, 34 and 35. Jesus will say this in the future. We'll read this again when we get there in our studies. Calling the crowd along with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. What are you willing to give up 
to follow Jesus. Well, these four made the right choice. They knew him, they trusted him, they had faith in him, so they laid everything aside. Story continues, verse 21, they went into Capernaum. This is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue and he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Yeah, I would think that that would spread around a little bit of a buzz. Regarding verse 22, at the very beginning of this, consider Isaiah 42, verse 2. As I told you, that passage provides somewhat of an outline to what we're seeing Jesus live out. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. So because Jesus wasn't making a show out of it, what was it that was astonishing about his teaching? What was it that was different that people heard him preach, heard him teach, and were like, this is unbelievable. This is, I mean, astonishing is a, it's a word you would use if you looked up a sin and be surprising. I didn't expect this. Isn't that sad? When you go to church and you actually get ministered to? I hope that's not your experience. I hope you guys are like, wow, that was actually helpful. Surprising. I think he might have spent time with the Lord this week. That shouldn't be different than normal. That should be very normal. It wasn't like the scribes. Jesus talks about the teaching of the scribes in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Important perspective on the teaching that the scribes and the Pharisees offered to the people. This is super helpful. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, it says in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. That's horrible. The power of Jesus' ministry was unveiled immediately, using Mark's word again, because he does not command his disciples to go somewhere he is not willing to go, nor to do something he's not willing to do. For Jesus doesn't send us into a temptation without first going into temptation himself. Isn't that what we saw last week? He just went 40 and 0 against the devil in the wilderness. Seriously, <laughs> I know it's a funny way of saying it, but think about that. He just went into the wilderness and for 40 days beat down Satan at, at this temptation game in a compromised state. He goes head to head in the wilderness, doesn't surrender a point. He preaches from a heart of purity and sincerity because the words he speaks are not just the right words, but the right words spoken from a righteous man. 
That is the word of Jesus. When you read the scriptures and you read the words of Jesus, it is the right words spoken from a righteous man. The proof of his righteousness is in the astonishment that Mark so colorfully describes for us as the listeners are just completely shocked at what he's saying. Unbelievable. Is it that they've never heard the scriptures before? No, they've never heard them in sincerity. They've never heard them spoken from someone who is pure and righteous. The proof of his power over Satan that was won in the solitude of the wilderness is now revealed even more so as this demon-possessed man somehow appears in the synagogue. What do you think brought him there? I like to ask questions of the text that I don't have like perfect answers for. But like suddenly this guy shows up in the synagogue. Why? Well, I wonder what brought him there. It's probably an angel just poking him. Oh, like, go, go, go. And he's like, <laughs> the whole way there. Much like your parents brought you to church this morning. He, he cries out, <laughs> you little devils. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. It's getting edited right out. He cries out to Jesus, this demon-possessed person. It's the demon speaking. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? What an interesting question. What a fascinating question. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and get out. And in a frail attempt... At holding on, the unclean spirit throws him into convulsions and shouts, and out he comes. Have you ever thought why this demon was so terrified of him? That thought ever come into your mind, like, why is he so terrified of Jesus? You know, I used to take the the pad easy answer. It's Jesus, (laughs) right? Clearly, (laughs) that's why. Why? Why is he so afraid? The thought occurred to me this week as I was reading this. If Jesus just completely pounded Satan into the dirt... Being tempted by him and withstanding that temptation and defeating him completely. Yeah, if you were a demon, you'd be pretty concerned. He just whooped your master at his own game. Righteously, in a holy, pure way. Yeah, if you were a demon, you'd be pretty scared. Because he has complete authority over you. You have no hold on him. There's no hope for the minion of an enemy. There's no challenge to be offered, only a plea, only the question, what are you going to do to us? Not stop, but what are you going to do? It's a question, meaning that Jesus is in complete control because it's totally up to him. Jesus responds, interestingly enough, in the Greek with the word phemo. It's one word. It literally means be muzzled. When he says, be silent, be muzzled. What, how would we say that in our, our day and age? Shut up. That's exactly what it is. You're like, oh, Jesus would never say it. Oh, yes, he did. He says, shut up and get out. And the demon obeys. You guys, the healing ministry of Jesus was twofold. We see the first aspect here. He heals this man mentally. He heals this man from within. 
We know that physical things would happen during possession. We've seen that happen before. But right now, he heals this man in, in his mind, in his mental state, dispossessing him of a demon that possessed him. He dispossesses the demon from him. Do we ever think about this situation backwards sometimes? I thought this would be worth just noting here. That the miracles of Jesus are like breaking in on reality. Like he's coming into reality and, and doing something different rather than thinking of them this way, that a person who's possessed is a violation to natural order. And by natural order, the way that God created things to be. A possession is a violation of natural order, and Jesus came to restore that order. Jesus came to restore things to the way that God had made them to be in the first place. Do you view Jesus that way? Do we welcome him into our lives in that way? Lord, I want you to come into my life and I want you to restore things that are unnatural. And by saying that, you're saying, I believe that the way God has made things is the way that they should be. And Jesus comes in to restore that. A demon-possessed person is unnatural, not at all the way God created us to be. Jesus didn't violate order. He restores it to what it should be. He restores us the way we ought to be created in God's image, reflecting his goodness for his glory. And everyone there in the synagogue was incredulous. They're buzzing with curiosity. What's going on? People who are demon possessed were not to be trifled with. Jesus didn't just trifle with them. He shut them up and he threw them out. Not the person, the demon. That's spiritual power. A new teaching, they said, that does what it says it's not just talk, it's actions too. It's not what they were used to with the scribes. He shuts up defiling demonic spirits and sends them packing. That's what Jesus does. And of course, the news travels very quickly. Continuing on in verse 29, this is one heck of a day. Jesus is there. He fills the net with fish, nets with fishes. He gets the four guys together. He shows up in the synagogue. He preaches. This is a crazy Sabbath. Continue on in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was laying in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once. Please notice that. What's the first thing they do when they have someone who's sick in the house? They didn't tell Jesus so he could stay away from her and not get sick. Right? Isn't that how we warn people? People come into our house, ah, my kids are sick, so don't touch them. Right? We haven't touched them in months. We're not sure. <laughs> You guys, that's not why they tell him that the mother-in-law is sick. Why do they tell Jesus? Because of what he'll do. Because of what he will do. He goes right in there. Verse 31, he went to her, took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her. She began to serve them. When evening came after the sun had set, that's the end of Sabbath, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I have a feeling his word of the night was FEMO. Be muzzled, be muzzled, be muzzled. Shut up, quiet, you out. You know, like, wouldn't it be cool to watch Jesus just throw down on demons all night? That'd be so much fun. Peter and Andrew did something really good here. Let's not miss this. 
Peter and Andrew, this is their place. They're brothers. They don't just bring John and James home, do they? Who do they bring home? Who came with them? It's the obvious answer, the one that you always give in Sunday school. There you go. You're like, well, yeah, of course they brought. Think about that. They didn't leave him at church. They didn't leave Jesus at the synagogue. They brought him home. Because that's where he belongs. Church, don't leave Jesus at church. Bring Jesus home. That's where he belongs. You guys, take him home with you. Let him share your blessings and your burdens. Bring him into fellowship with you and your family. Bring him to the dinner table. Bring him to the living room when you have conversation. Bring him into your kids' rooms when you pray with them at night. Bring them into bring him into your own bedroom when you pray with your spouse or when you pray by yourself. Bring Jesus home. For when Jesus is in the house, he's there to fellowship with us to heal our families and to welcome outsiders in for healing and blessing too. Jesus becomes the host, doesn't he? When Jesus is in the house, he becomes the host. Now it's about his work in our house. Uh, How much does it seem like Peter and Andrew are actually kind of dictating things that are happening here? Not really. They just opened their doors. They let Jesus come in and Jesus did the work. Jesus goes right to work. Here's the second aspect of Jesus's healing ministry. The first one we talked about, the freedom uh, for the man who was possessed by the demon. The second aspect is seen here. Our sicknesses and afflictions are part of a sinful world. It's why we pray over each other. It's why we follow scripture's command to pray over people who are sick, to anoint them with oil and to ask for the Lord to heal them. Our sicknesses and afflictions are part of a sinful world. They are byproducts of sins that affect our world. Now, I'm not saying that the reason everyone is sick is because they have sinned in some way. I'm saying that that could be the reason. And I'm also saying that you could just be sick because this world is fallen and broken. Not all sicknesses are punishments, but every single one of them is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Every single one of them, he can heal, he can touch, he can use for his glory. Jesus reveals the heart of God, again, not by violating natural order, but by restoring people to what they ought to be. And in his kindness and compassion, he raises Peter's mother-in-law from the bed and the fever's gone. And not just gone. How many of you have had a really bad fever? I mean, like it just, I mean, yeah, show up, like whole room, right? I mean, like you just, you know, especially if you're a guy, you look at your wife, you're like, this is it. My guitar, I leave to Gina. (laughs) My baseball cards to Sophia. Sophia's like, I don't want the baseball cards. (laughs) The fever, it's wrecking his brain. (laughs) You guys, how many times have you had a fever and like when it's gone, there's like a recovery period, right? You're down for a while. You got to like, you got to get some more fluids and you got to recuperate. No, she's good. Jesus heals her. She's up. She's serving. Serving them their Sabbath dinner. She just starts serving. And you're like, did Jesus heal her just to serve them? No. (laughs) (laughs) 
the dumb things that pop in my head. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, right now, he's like, you're lucky that I love you. <laughs> you guys, she couldn't be stopped. When the Lord heals you, when the Lord sets you free, boy, all you want to do is serve. All you want to do is be a blessing. I can't believe how good I feel. Let me make you dinner. Right? It's an exciting thing. And the same power that muzzled the demon and cast away now gently lifts the hand of this feverish woman and heals her, and she's revived, and she serves them. And I think of Isaiah 42 again. Isaiah 42, verse 3, which says, He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. Can I read that to you a little bit more of a paraphrase? He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt. He won't disregard the small and insignificant. He will steadily and firmly set things right. That's our God. That's our Jesus. He cares about those who are hurting and seem insignificant. And he cares about when you get a cold just as much as he cares about when you lose a loved one. He cares about the possessed people in the city just as much as he cares about you getting that job interview. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. And we need to invite Jesus home for dinner. We need to get him into every aspect of our lives. And now you're like, but I'm a Christian. I realize that, but so often we're relying on ourselves to get all this done. And that's why we're so frustrated. It's why we're so put out. It's why we're so done with life at times because we're trying to do the work that Jesus wants to do in your home. Maybe he's been a part of your life and not the master of the house. Jesus in his rightful place as master of the house, just as much as he is the Lord of light. Well, things at sundown get even better as not only Peter's mother-in-law has been healed, now Jesus takes it to the town. Well, the town actually comes to him. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. Even in a small area, if you've been to Capernaum, you know what I'm talking about. It's a pretty small area. Even a small area like that, if the entire town came to the door of one house, it'd be a pretty good-sized crowd. And they all come to the door, and he heals many who were sick with various diseases and drives out demons. And I just love that in the midst of all of this, Jesus is in complete authority and control over the spirits of darkness. We don't have to be afraid. Not when Jesus is in the house. It's funny. This is a spooky building. <laughs> the youth will tell you that. <laughs> this building at night, I challenge you. <laughs> I have places in this building that I will put you and turn all the lights off and you will call for help. <laughs> scary stuff. You guys... This is real, right? I mean, how many of you were afraid of the murderer in your garage? Right? When you were a kid, the lights would go out and you would trip over everything in your way just to get to the, ha, 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 you know, like, that was me. That was me. It freaked me out. Why? It's scary to be in the dark. Now when Jesus is in the house, right? Amen, brother. Now when Jesus is in the house, 
You guys, are we unnecessarily afraid of things in our lives because we don't, we're not walking with the Lord? We're not entrusting it to him. We're not letting him decide. We're not letting him lead in that way. Think of it this way. The nets that were empty were now full. They're at the doorway. The starving region of Galilee, due to the lack of sincerity and power within the teachings of scribes, was now being fed. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they're learning to fish all over again. Jesus is literally taking them to school, showing them this is how you fish for people. Jesus opened the door of the house and through the power of his word and actions, the net was full, people in pain, people afflicted, gathering to be touched by God's servant savior. Just to be touched, to be spoken over. As we continue to move through this, you guys, I want to call us again. All eyes on Jesus. Watch him. Carefully observe every word, every movement, everything that he's doing. Gaze at Jesus. The goal of these times in the gospel of Mark, although I love to laugh with you, is not laughter. The goal is not to be wowed and forget. The goal is to be closer to Jesus when we exit this text in Mark chapter 16 than we've ever been. To be more astonished, more surprised, more in awe of him than we've ever been. That's the goal. Listen to his words. Watch his actions. A right word and right actions from a righteous man. Church, let's let Jesus teach us how to fish again. Let's let Jesus teach us how to do ministry again. How to reach people. How to bless them. How to love them. We think too often that we have all the right things going. We start to think that our process and our procedure is actually what's getting us the results. And I'm not dissing on organization, but if your organization requires more planning meetings than prayer meetings, something's very broken. Let's be a church who prays. Let's be a church that seeks after God's will and his power and brings Jesus right into the midst and says, do your thing, teach us to fish again. Fill the nets for your glory. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize your words and your call from the Great Commission for us to go and to make disciples. Here in these pages of Mark's gospel, we're reminded how to train, how to teach, how to love. Jesus, as we look at you, I can't imagine what will be going through Simon and Andrew and James and John's minds as they were watching you do all these incredible things. It would be so easy to be overwhelmed at the power. And clearly these men were exhausted because the next morning when they got up, they had to go find you because you were in a desolate place praying. Jesus, help us to hone in on the keys of doing ministry your way. And by ministry, I mean living out our lives. Lord, doing ministry means that we are fulfilling the calling. And as Paul encouraged the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, 
Lord, I pray that we would take that challenge on ourselves. And Jesus, we would recognize that it's not going to be based on our amount of effort. It's going to be based on our reliance on you. The absolute necessity that you are in our midst, that you are the one who is doing the work. For Lord, not one person in this room has ever saved another soul. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can use us as part of your work. You can allow us to be conduits that your power flows through. We are not the source. And Lord, so many times I know in myself, I look at my own life and I just recognize that I'm trying to do it on my own. I'm trying to manufacture power. I'm trying to find a way to make this situation work instead of sitting down quietly and crying out to you and saying, Lord, you do what you want. I trust you. Lord, all night long I labored and didn't catch one fish. But at your word, I'll put the nets in again. Jesus, the reason you orchestrated that is because you would receive the glory. It was your power, your ability. So Lord, in us, show yourself mighty. For your name's sake, save the lost souls around us. Use us to do it. Do so through your power because of your great love and your amazing grace.